I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a mega church, and I'm still an evangelical. <laughs> he took my line. I'm Dave. Ah, <laughs> oh, you caught it. I'm sorry. I was trying to like rabbit season, duck season you there. Oh, um, totally threw me off. I'm Dave. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know what I believe anymore, but I believe a lot less than I believed when I started this podcast. Fair. <laughs> I'm Dave. I'm an occasional preacher, a theology Bible nerd, a movie buff, and I'm an evangelical. Actually, an evangelical. Kind yeah, of, all right. I guess, kind we of. covered it. Yeah, this is it. Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we're back, Zach, after a little bit of a hiatus. I I think I'm doing okay with remembering how to do my job here at the Veteran Culture Hall. Veteran Culture War Hall. Thank you for dusting. Uh, Uh, Yeah, you're welcome. Some some of the some of the the corners in particular were looking bad. So totally, I'm glad you took care, took care of that before I showed up. Yeah, high standards, very high standards. You know, and to help me remember how to do my job, I figured maybe we should bring on another podcast host on a, on a different show, and um, you know, talk to them about their story with evangelical Christianity, and talk to them about some other topics. So. Presumptuous to assume that somebody on another show is an an expert on you and how you do your job here. I would think. Yeah, but having listened to their show, it's a really good show. So okay, I think we'll grill our guests on exactly how much of our show they have heard. Is that a good idea? The litmus test. No, we don't have we don't have to do that. Um, But uh, on this show tonight, or whenever somebody happens to hear this, we have a classically trained musician. Uh, she is a highly regarded drummer. Um, she is the co-host of the Multiple Sources podcast with Dr. Quincy Gideon and former Veterans of Culture Wars guest, uh, Dr. Gregory Allen Thornberry. So tonight, and she's also a Twitter resident. So um, Jazz Robertson. How are you doing tonight, Jazz? You know, I'm doing really well, Dave. And first of all, I just have to say, I think you did a good job dusting. Sweet. Um, yeah, it looks good from here. Okay. You're, you're, I'll take so, it. you know, you're a drummer, so you probably appreciate the acoustics in this, in this building. You get a <laughs> lot of reverb on, on, on those toms in particular. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's great. That's right. We have some of that. That's what compression's for. We have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Jazz, we start off um, asking our guests usually their story with evangelical Christianity. And I saw on your website that you are a recovering evangelical. Um, so what, what is your story with evangelical Christianity? Good, bad, ugly, uh, whatever that may be. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Big question. So, yeah, it, it kind of is. Um, let me see if I can do the Reader's Digest kind of edition. Um, so 
my story, my conscious story, I guess, really starts in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, when I was really young. My mom had grown up Protestant, not particularly religious, but, you know, you you go to church, especially if you have kids, you take them to church. Like this is what you, what you do. Right. So I kind of moved through a series of churches. We went to a couple of Presbyterian ones. I think there was a Methodist one that was closer to the house that was more convenient for a summer. Went to a couple of different Catholic services because my, my stepdad at the time was, was very Roman Catholic. He was probably between the two of them, the only one who was very religious um, to the point where his relatives would actually send me rosaries and prayer cards for my birthday, for Christmas. And my mom, being a good Protestant girl, would just snatch those right up and just disappear them into the ether. I don't, I never saw them again. I don't know where they went, but she's, she's like, absolutely not. We're not doing any of that. Uh, so that, I think that was probably the first seven years or so of my my early childhood exposure to, to churches it was kind of like kind of vanilla I suppose um whenever I was about eight ish we started going to a very large church in Nashville which I guess would be termed a mega church now um so what's Nashville the, large Nashville large I guess we had like I mean I think there were five services on Sunday so there was you know three services in the morning Two in the evening, there were, I think the sanctuary sat like three or 4,000 people um, because that's, that was totally normal. Like, that's fine. I don't know. Um, I think that, I think it's about large, I think it's pretty large, I guess. Yeah. You know, we're you know, talking like mid nineties at this point. Were there contemporary um, Christian music stars that attended there, did special music? Like yes that. there yeah there were i met charlie daniels in fact oh. he was uh, in attendance there was this gentleman out of branson missouri named dino he was known as dino with the branson touch and he was like this star like showy pianist guy yeah um, I I dino yeah yeah he, yeah he turned up like some members of the gaithers were there like the winings would come through, like there, like there was like a, a pretty steady stream of various like CCM, like gospel yeah. people who came through the church. You know, there was an orchestra, like it was, it was a lot, <laughs> you know? So it was a, it was a big, very big church. Um, and it was considered non-denominational, <clears throat> although I believe that the background was more on the Pentecostal side. Cause you know, you had the, the speaking in tongues and the, you know, the knocking people out that, that was wild, by the way, the first time mm-hmm. I saw that happen, I was not prepared for any of that. There was people started crying at the front after about an hour and a half into the service, because I would start crying about an hour and a half into the service. Cause it's just long, but then people <laughs> would go forward and catch the Holy ghost or whatever. And somebody would come through and, you know, give them a little, little tap on the forehead and down they would go and that was that was kind of that was Sunday you know that was that was kind of the deal um totally fine you know I just just thought well this is weird but you know there there's gonna be food afterwards so I guess we'll just kind of deal with it um but then my mom started getting more involved and she started singing in the choir she's uh she herself is um is a musician she's a wonderful vocalist she's a she's a very extensive um vocal range and so she got into the choir and that was she spent a lot of time in there. So we were just there all the time. Like we were there on Sundays, almost all day, start there in the morning, do services, go home, have Sunday early dinner, and then 
go back for more services. And then we'd be back again on a Tuesday for a Bible study and like a Wednesday for a prayer meeting and a Thursday for some rehearsal. And then a fr- Friday, there was some kind of night for, I don't even know what. So we were there probably like four days, <laughs> four days a week, four or five wow. days a week for something. Yeah. Um, so that, so that was a, a fun start. Um, uh, we went there probably, I guess, three, three or so years. And then my mom and I, my mom uh, and her husband split and we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she is originally from. And I went to, yeah, again, a few more churches of, you know, various varieties. We landed in something of like a, I guess, Episcopal adjacent kind of church, you know, um, that was trying to be more contemporary Hmm. and try, you know, trying to be a little less traditional like everybody's you know you still have you know the, the communion and you still have like the little prayer bench thing of majigs that came out of the, the pews you know so everybody could kneel for the prayers and whatnot but you also had more contemporary worship services um they were kind of trying to move into that direction you know like if you don't kind of spruce it up a little bit then you're gonna lose membership and that's you know that's just kind of the kind of the story that's so, gotta be kind of a culture shock of, <clears throat> I'm, I'm assuming the the holy ghost stuff was not going on at the episcopal church so going to more of a, it was not yeah <laughs> a laid back uh um probably yeah. it sounds like smaller attendance um i don't think there are too many episcopal churches that are you know in the multiple thousands at least that i've heard no it but, was definitely not that it was i mean it was, a, it was a, in their defense you know it was a respectable congregation you know probably four or five hundred people hmm. um so it was you know, reasonably sized I guess um but yeah it was definitely less of of that less of like the high energy all-day service thing and a little little more contained Mm -hmm. I guess um you're you're a drummer and and drums have historically uh been very controversial in in church uh they're controversial (laughs) everywhere man I I mean (laughs) Well, I mean, my science textbooks in Christian school told me about the evil African rhythms of drums that summon demons. That's right. My science textbook told me that. That's um, cool. Totally uh, fine. <laughs> but um, oh, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if if there were always drums at the churches that you went to, or if you remember the introduction of drums. Yeah. Uh, so no, uh, most of them did not have them um the, the the large one that that i that i mentioned that was in nashville definitely had them in fact they had two drummers because you know services were long so you know you'd have one guy on the kit and you'd have somebody on percussion and they would you know, as the need you know required they just you know, switch off you know as the um led. as the <laughs> that's right you now you're now you're getting with it um so you know, so there was that and then whenever uh, we kind of settled into this, uh, you know, former Episcopal sort of church thing, they started with like their, their general service had like a little um, kind of like a basic like Yamaha electronic kit, mm. you know, so it wasn't scary. Yeah. You know, they could, they could control the level. And like the funny thing to me was that they had this thing behind a shield behind a drum shield i'm like guys <laughs> like what, right, <laughs> what I, exactly do you think is this is for i i want to get into this now so you you i assume you have played on on worship teams at churches 
I have, yeah. You have. Okay. Yes. I have as well. Uh, my, you know, growing up, my, my family did very charismatic churches, Vineyard, Foursquare. I started playing in at the Foursquare church in the youth group in high school. Uh, went to Mars Hill. Um, yeah. And I played in a band there and left that uh, led worship at a church plant that was part of Acts 29, left all of that. And then I played at a Nazarene church for a few years and different situations. Marissa liked things loud. Um, the Nazarene church, um, drum shield, um, like mutes on the, on the symbols. They, they, they had a guy come in that had like, he'd invented these like clamps to put on the hi-hats so they don't, hit together too loudly or something yeah it was and then there was like rules about what types of sticks you're allowed to use Mm. everything was about getting everything as quiet as possible except for the vocals (laughs) as we all know like you could you could listen to ccm with no lyrics and identify it immediately because the vocals are louder in the mix than literally any other type of music um i'm 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 wondering (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah i i played guitar and it was always like can you get a little quieter can you get a little quieter can we can we cover up the amp with something can we lean something up against it so it's less loud you know i i, I had an attenuator box that made it quieter uh coming coming from the the amp circuitry to the speaker like all this stuff just to make it quieter and quieter and it was awful um but <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if you have some some experiences like that that really stick out where you're just like please just let me be a musician <laughs> wow yeah well first of all let's address the, the volume issue um <clears throat> so, you know whether it's whether you're playing in church or you're playing a corporate gig whenever you're a drummer people immediately go oh this is going to be loud this is going to be a problem somehow. This is going to be disruptive or whatever. It's almost like they don't consider it to be an instrument, which I find to be uh, appalling and ignorant, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, so I hear you on like the, you can't use, I, I was told on a couple of these occasions that, well, we can't use like, like the wood sticks, but you can use, you know, those other like quiet sticks. So what are the they, things like, that are like a bundle you know, of sticks together? Yeah. Taped so by, together right. By quiet sticks, they meant like, like a hot, hot rod would hot be rod. like yes. the, that's you know, like, like that's the one that, uh, that like Vic Firth came up with. And there have been other iterations with, with Vader and, and Promark and, and others, but you know, see so the idea it's much, much thinner, smaller doll rods kind of put together. So it's more of like a, a tapping as opposed to a hitting sort of response mm-hmm. and they go okay well we'll allow that you know like that's safe you know and it's but like you okay do like brushes maybe some you know, soft mallets brushes you're okay but you have to be careful with the mallets you don't want to get too wild on the symbol you know oh. you don't want to do the suspended symbol thing and freak anybody out but <laughs> um but one of my favorite things i do do you play guitar Zach? Yeah. Is that, okay so you maybe you'll be familiar with this when somebody goes oh it's really loud can you do something and you pretend to turn it down and you go how's this and they go that's so much better yeah. that's one of my favorite things in this in, in this life yeah. really is somebody going oh you did it looks like you did something excellent thank you they have no idea yeah. that nothing happened yeah I, yeah i mean i can't tell I'm you so- how many times like 
I feel like I was adding something interesting. I liked what I was playing. And I'd, I'd go and talk to my wife afterwards. She's like, yeah, I couldn't hear a note you played. <laughs> and so I just finally just had to learn. Thank like, you. Don't, don't trust the sound guys at all. No. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have it rolled back a little on the guitar yeah. while doing the sound check and then turn it up to what I felt it needed to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I got I got lucky in that church um, of all people to, to turn up and be the sound guy at this thing. Uh, it was this guy named, named Jamie and he had like an amazing like black curly mullet situation happening, mm. you know, and he had been he'd worked as a roadie and he'd worked as um, as front of house engineer for like Guns and Roses and like wow. a slew of like these other like serious i think for the dead for a while like big like, like serious rock band so he'd been out yeah you know so he actually had an idea as to what was going on and um he was somebody he was like the first person i'd met in church who seemed normal <laughs> and of course this guy was usually high as hell but you know i know i know he'd be out in his truck before services being like god all right let's do this you know he'd probably have a little token come on in and, and and kill it but he was the first person i'd like i could talk to about music and it didn't have to be about you know, worship music or you know jesus or anything like that it was just like let's just talk about music hmm. you know and he would tell me you know funny stories on the road and interesting people that he'd met and that was kind of my first real um kind of inkling that they were that i could do something more mm -hmm. with with music that there that there were other possibilities um i started playing drums in, in high school so i you know i became like the the drummer for the youth group and the guy that they'd had playing drums i would watch him play and it got on my nerves because it was really as you were talking about before zach it was really quiet yeah. And it was just like, come on, man, give it, give on, give me a little, a little something, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so one day, like I'd probably been playing drums for, for a couple months and I decided that I'd had enough <laughs> and uh, whether I, I should have or not, um, I've never been terribly shy. And I went to the, the, the youth pastor who, of course, you know, was the, the worship leader for the youth group, you know, like picture you know, cargo shorts apologist with you know, the backwards hat and like the black acoustic guitar and the goatee. It's kind of like the worship youth leader starter pack kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was, his, that was his look. And I said, man, I'm going to play drums. And he said, oh, you are? I said, yeah. Like, I like, you know, this kid, but like, this is not working. And he said, oh, okay. Well, well, maybe you can share. I was like, yeah, okay. So yeah, we we shared for a, for a couple couple weeks, and then he officially left the drums, <laughs> and so that's how I started playing on a more regular basis. Just like not just in my house, but every week, you know, we go to get to church a little earlier, run through some songs, and then play it. You know, so in that sense, like church was, and I think how it is. You know, you hear a lot about like gospel drummers and stuff like that. That's kind of where you you have a chance to really you know shed and get used to playing with people you yeah. know not just not just playing with yourself at home and thinking you sound great but actually seeing how that that works in, in a group setting yeah now over time you know, marching band and stuff in high school so <clears throat> funny story uh <laughs> i gotta say I, somebody that did band and like 
my family was really into band. My, my, my parents had a sheet music store. My dad was, oh, in, cool. my, my dad got out of like actual combat military service in Vietnam by enlisting for the national guard band. Um, so he, he played trumpet for governor inaugurations and stuff like that. Uh, and, and he was, he, he was a band director in, in public schools before he and my mom started there. Basically it's a, it was a worship leader supply store but they made sure that, that we did band. I did trumpet as well. Um, but the high school kids in band that did drums were always the cool kids. Those were the punk kids. Like yeah. those were the ones that on the side, they had like a real band, but yeah. in class, you know, they had a single enormous bass drum or something, you know? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And they just had to, yeah, you know, try to rock that, you know, um, in like, like the concert band kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, so I, I played, some percussion like in in middle school just seeing like snare drum and that and that kind of stuff um but when i got to high school it was probably about let's see when i was in ninth grade 9 11 happened right Mm -hmm. and so all kinds of craziness happened and about halfway through my mom just we were going through all kinds of other like personal things and she she pulled me out of school and i started homeschooling yeah. For, for the rest of, of high school, school or for? For the rest of high school. Yes. Nice. So for, you know, three and a half years did that, which okay. was actually conducive um, to a musician's life because I could practice whenever I wanted. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where I get done with my schoolwork in a couple hours and then I just play. Get on the like, drums. Yeah. For like five or six hours. Yeah. You know, like that was, that was awesome so missed out on the marching band thing which i think would have been kind of cool because my, my mom and, and her siblings had grown up in drum and bugle corps mm. stuff so they were they love that kind of thing so i didn't have a chance to do the marching band but i did uh go play in bars instead so i played i played in churches and then started playing in bars so yeah. well, common activity for homeschoolers Right, totally. <laughs> that fits to- right in. Totally. Yeah, exactly. You know, my friends would be out at the bus stop at like seven o'clock in the morning and I'd be, you know, falling asleep after <laughs> 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 getting home at like four o'clock. So I have I have two church percussion questions. Ready. Um so I guess one is more it's a story. So I, I played with various drummers at the Nazarene Church. One was a very sweet lady that uh had very predictable fills, but she was always like really concerned with making sure that the audience knew that she was like enjoying playing. So she always like was really like had this very specific smile and her face, her head was always tilted in exactly the same spot. And she just, it was very odd, but, but the most important thing to her was she brought her own chime line. She always, she always had to do the, 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 the chimes that it's that like cheesy nineties, like, I don't know, it's supposed to go along. It feels like, like new age music to a company, like looking at stars or, or the pastor's about to take it down real low and get real serious. And she'd do the chime line, you know? And, uh, I, I just, I always, I always wanted to sabotage that thing. Um, (laughs) there's just something about the chime line that i can't handle so what's up with the chime line and what's up with the church and djembes <laughs> the church seems oh. to love djembes 
Okay, well, let's let's address the the wind chime situation. Um, so the wind chimes were especially prominent in the '90s in gospel music and in mm. R&B, <clears throat> and so it was you know it's a, this beautiful um, you know sonic expression of you know this is where the song the song is going somewhere right, mm. but much like the tambourine or the triangle, things get abused. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> it's like i know you like that but it doesn't have to be there yeah you know but if the wind chimes that if that was like maybe like a thing and she had set up at the pastor where he was like i need wind chimes in my life then i don't know like i i guess but it, that seems like a really weird choice that's a weird one um as far as the djembe thing goes it's not just church but there's definitely like it's definitely there and there's like a level of bro with it with the djembe because like you know the barrier to entry to play it is like on the floor you know like a kid can can sit with it and you know kind of like tap out something so somebody gets it and they start feeling themselves you know we start getting like yeah there's like a, a drum circle kind of thing happening and they just you know i love that for them i love it they feel connected to it but again it's one of those things where it's like do you need that is this something that you should have like there's like, other hand drums <laughs> that could be used. Like I don't recall ever seeing tablas uh, in church, which is a shame. Those can be it's great. A, they are it's a beautiful instrument. Got one of stairs, you know. But yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it is just like they want. It's like the, a portable thing, right? You can take an acoustic guitar, you can take a djembe, throw somebody a shaker, and then you can have worship service around the campfire, right? I think that maybe that's like a a thing. I guess I don't know. Part part of me thinks I don't know. I was suspicious in the '90s when suddenly African children's choirs were everywhere in Christian music. Every church had to bring in an African children's choir, and I'm like, eh, there's yeah. some sort of co- co- colonizing mindset going on here. I don't know. We're, we're gonna bring yeah. in a djembe. It's gonna be played by a white guy. Yep. And, yep. <laughs> but yep. it's gonna have like a, a kente cloth looking design on the outside mm-hmm. of it, and yes. that's gonna diversity that's going to diversify the aesthetics of the stage i don't know yeah yeah it was an embarrassing time Uh (laughs) church in the 90s right um did you ever i mean so over over time of playing music at church um i've heard so many stories of um, i mean it's good but then people are are committed to it and then it takes so much of your time and then it's the I know of a lot of people that have gotten burnt out just, you know, spending so many hours at the church to be committed and then not getting paid. That's, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a, a friend of Zach's and kind of a friend of our show, Dr. Jessica Johnson, who wrote um, the book biblical porn on Mars Hill. And if you guys are in the future looking for a guest idea, she's great uh, by the way. Um, but she, she writes about Mark Driscoll and kind of just the free labor that ran that whole enterprise. And there's a lot of churches that are like that um with the volunteer thing but how did that work out for you did you reach a point where maybe maybe it's fun it's mostly fun but then it's like oh man i want to do so many other things in life and this is just a huge time commitment that i'm doing yeah definitely um you raise a a great point of the you know the exploitation of free labor Mm -hmm. you know because people want to want to want to give and uh, they want to pr- provide a service and, and that sort of thing. But whenever you do end up spending, 
you know, almost a part-time job or even, a, you know, if you're a worship leader or music director, a full-time job yeah. preparing for, for various services. And that doesn't even get into special events, you know, like the Christmas service or, you know, like the Easter or, or whatever, extra holidays or baptisms or, you know, the, any, anything like that, you know, uh, and especially depending on, on the size of the group, you, you, uh, you have a lot of work expected of you and not a whole lot of return. Sometimes you don't even get a thank you, you know, kind of like the, the bare minimum, you know, it's you're, you're just sort of taken for granted that, oh, well, God gave you a gift. And so we're going to exploit it. <laughs> you know? Right. It's a, it's, it's kind of a kind of a bizarre feeling. So, I mean, I did, I did my, I served my time, if you will. You know, I, I played the various services. I played at, at youth camps, you know, um, you know, did those, those summer camps and, and whatnot, uh, which, you know, in a way it was, um, is a good excuse for me to get out of having to do other church things, you know, like have to be, at, oh, I can't be at that, that Bible study or something. Cause I have rehearsal, you know, it was a kind of a way for me, like to deal with having to be in church. I didn't really have a choice. It was like, no, you're going to church. Like, so figure out a way to be there. And so that music was kind of my, my way of, of, of doing that. Um, but after, after a couple of years, I started getting other, other gigs that started paying me money. And it turns out that it's really nice to be paid for doing <laughs> stuff, right? Like yeah. mind blowing, right? Where I'm looking I w- forward to, sit to, to knowing what that feels like. It's yeah. really, it's really something, you know? um it's especially these days it's kind of tough um but yeah I started getting gigs and I started making money and it was uh it was no longer I no longer felt like I needed to keep doing the the church gig because it was it was just too much um because the more you do it the more you spend time with the same people you know how it is in organizations drama inevitably occurs whether or not you are in the drama you're at least still adjacent to it. And, you know, that's, uh, that's never fun. So yeah, I started playing, playing music for money and, and kind of dropped that. In fact, now that I think about it, the one guy who still owes me money from like 2002 was a church guy. Still owes me $50. I mean, with, <laughs> with inflation, with interest, like just, yeah, like, I'm just thinking like 200, 20 years. 20 year interest. Like it's yeah, you know, it's damn, be damn, it's been 20 years and he still go. owes me $50. He avoided me. I don't like I sent him some text messages and he's like, Yeah, I'll get that to you. And I didn't see him again. Uh, and so track my, him that down. was my that right there was my first taste of the music business where it was like, no, 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 you don't leave without money in hand. And I was like, you know, that's it. So thanks, church. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> track him down send him your venmo details be like all right mm-hmm. man time to yeah, pay up is. right <laughs> how, mu- how much did you get to be creative doing church music because i've experienced like at mars hill it was bands that wrote their own songs and mm-hmm. and we didn't swap members out each week yeah we, we were a set group that got together like every week and practiced and wrote stuff and performed that mm-hmm. and at the nazarene church they were more looking for a karaoke band. Yes. I, I was able to have some leeway to write my parts. Cause like 
at Mars Hill, it was our own things. By the time I got to Nazarene Church, it was, we're playing the songs that people are listening to on Christian radio that are popular that I have right. never heard before. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have no interest in, mm-hmm. but I enjoy playing with other people. So I will do this. But so I'm not familiar with like, what are the parts? What, what are the things about this guitar part that people really want to hear? What, what, what's mm-hmm. their favorite parts of this song? I've never heard it before. So I'm going to play it how I want to play it. And luckily, my friend was the worship pastor, and he was okay with that. But I know that a lot of church environments, it's do not stray from the recording, just learn Mm. it exactly the way it is. That's all we want. Yeah. What was your experience like with that? I mean, I'm luckily... um... I didn't play like the, the, the main worship services where it was a little bit more rigid. Um, all of the other services that I did and then uh, later playing um, like a, like a like straight up black gospel church where they're like all about, you know, improvisation, but you better, you better watch the cues. Otherwise you're going to miss it. And you're going to look bad. You look bad in front of Jesus and everybody else. If you miss the cues. <laughs> um, but luckily, you know, like whenever, whenever I was, I was playing in, in high school it was all ccm and you know stuff on on christian radio right so we're we had audio adrenaline and like switch foot like reliant k you know like that kind of stuff and then there was some you know like how oh, who is that um like some hill song um like some like delirious like worship songs like oh. that kind of stuff you know what i mean so the it was worst. all like i can sing of your love forever i don't know how oh. many times i played that song respect to those guys because they they wrote a, a fucking killer it's an accurate but... <laughs> description of how it feels to perform that song yeah the, the song the song's <laughs> title and chorus is an irony yeah. <laughs> you just see the hand go up like just keep it going keep uh. it going you know and it was one of those ones that was usually played um after the service when there was like a call you know like an altar call kind of thing and so you know it kind of had that vibe you know kind of get the emotions up a little bit you know like come to jesus come forward and you know when people were coming to jesus you don't want to interrupt the song you don't want to change the key you don't want to do anything to the changes you don't want it to be loud so that was a perfect song for that you know you just play that for like 15 minutes (laughs) yeah no you just you can you can zone out with that yeah yeah, yes yeah exactly just just all here hat and brain click like that was that's pretty much where i lived (laughs) oh man Now, um, kind of uh, switching switching gears, if we can, um, back yeah. to your story. Um, you were in Nashville, and you went mm-hmm. to Pittsburgh, and so you had different church experiences. And then at some point, I mean, it, you arrive now where you're a recovering evangelical. And I'm wondering, what were some of the phrase. recovering <laughs> right. evangelical? Yeah. Um, what were some of the, maybe the issues that you were thinking through? I mean, it, it's obvious from the multiple sources podcast and also like your Twitter and stuff, you're, you're an intellectual person. You think about things and um, you know, you put different ideas out there and what were some of those ideas that maybe got you to rethink your faith or got you into a faith transition? 
Yeah. Um, so I don't know if there was a time where I was never not thinking about it. Hmm. You know, I kind of go with it and my, so my, my personality is if I, if I get into something, I, I really, I go all the way, you know, like there's no half-assed it's 120%, um, kind of thing. So whenever I kind of got involved in church, I was just like, yeah, this is all cool. This is all fine. You're a kid. You don't really know, you know, what's going on. Um, but then some life circumstances at the time definitely made me question, you know, what, what is all of this, you know, like, what is God? Is there even God? Like, how are these bad things happening? You know, it's like a like kind of very basic questions, but you know, ones that never had a satisfactory answer. It was like, well, why is this happening? Oh, well, you know, God is going to work, you know, shine through the suffering. It's like, well, that's really nice for you to say, but that really ha- does not help me in this circumstance, you know? And so I was probably about 11 years old when I started having those kinds of thoughts when it was like, yeah, this is not, I really, I really started to struggle, you yeah. know? Um, and so the, the, the church we ended up at in, in Pittsburgh, they had a, a library, like a, like a little library that, you know, people had donated books to and, and whatnot. Um, and I found, and I think, my, I think my mom even still has it. It was basically, it was an introduction to philosophy book. And so it had, you know, everybody from Nietzsche to, to Camus and, I started reading that and that kind of set me off on my um, kind of little intellectual query throughout the years as to, you know, these guys make more sense than this stuff does, you know? And so I would kind of struggle because I grew up with this, you know, my mom is a very, um, you know, very like faith filled person. Like her faith is very, very important to her. Um, And it's gotten her through a lot of tough times, you know? And so I understand that and I respect that, but I, balancing that with this other stuff where it was like, yeah, but this also, this makes more sense. You know, like what these other guys are saying is a little bit closer to reality. So I definitely struggled with that um, and just kept picking up books over the years. I, and in high school, as I mentioned, I homeschooled. So I would just live at the library and I would just go through the section of like the philosophy and religion section and just grab stuff off the shelf that looked interesting and just start reading it. And so I kind of built up this little, um, my own kind of reference in my mind as to, you know, what kind of made sense and what I was willing to argue and what I was willing to kind of give on. And luckily, um, I think I was, I think I was must've been 17 and I started teaching myself, um, Biblical Greek, which was not a great idea, but um, <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, um, I, and tr- just trying to figure out what the stuff meant. It's like, okay, well, these guys are saying this, that it means this, but how do I know? You know, so I started to try to figure out exegesis, which again, you know, for what it's worth, I did it um, and thought, okay, I can probably manage this. I can, I can do this and started and kind of went into like an apologetic sort of mode where it was like, I, if I can make this argument, uh, and, and be successful in this argument, then, then I must be right. And my faith is okay. Um, and it, that worked on some people who hadn't, you know, had nearly as much time on their heads as I did, but (laughs) I ran into somebody who, um, who was quite a bit older than me and much, much wiser than me, who I was very fortunate to encounter at a Starbucks of all places, um, shortly after I graduated high school, 
uh, I worked a, a full-time job and would start at the Starbucks first thing in the morning, hang out there for about half an hour and then go to work. And this, this guy traveled all around the world. He was a, a physician and we started playing chess and we would talk about politics, religion, whatever. And he started challenging me on my, on my theology and my assumptions. And over the months of um, really intellectual hospitality, I started to realize that what I was fighting for was, had less to do with my being right because it was right, but my being right because I needed to be certain about something, uh, which is completely normal. But I needed to, to move away from that. I needed to figure out how to let go of that. So that's about the time, um, I guess, that the, the, the early stages of me getting out of, of church and, I guess, Christianity altogether. Hmm. So um, That need to be certain. It's, yeah. I, I remember what that felt like. And it's... it's so much more freeing to not worry about certainty all the time where I'm probably not a Christian at this point, but it's really nice that I could be like, eh, I don't really know what I believe because I don't feel like I have to believe that I'm a hundred percent right in my belief. Um, I just read Alan Watts, the wisdom of insecurity. Love that book. Yeah. My, my, my buddy recommended uh, that and the book as well. And uh, it's one of the, I finished reading it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to need to read this one again. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's just a lot in there, you know? Yeah. Um, But as I was going through it, everything was hitting was like, Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But I I can't, uh, I can't exactly quote from it, but you know, you you hear the title, you sort of get the idea of, of of, uh, the need for certainty is, is, it's not a need. <laughs> and, and, and he said, as, as, as soon as, as, as soon as there is some doubt about that certainty, then, then the religion loses its power over you. Mm. And that sound that, that sounds very scary to me two or three years ago. Yeah. Um, but very comforting to me now. Yeah. I can, I can, I can understand that. I mean, you know, I, <clears throat> I read Alan Watts um, because of Gregory Thornberry. Hmm. Um, we had, uh, we had a conversation and he said, you know what you should read? <laughs> you, <laughs> you should read Alan Watts. You should read the wisdom of insecurity and you should read become what you are which uh, it's one of those books that I refer to at least once a week for something, you know, there are these great little, little kind of bits of wisdom in it. Um, But that the certainty factor, I think, you know, when when we talk about faith and and religion, um, you know, one of, one of my friends of, you know, through Twitter is Dr. David Dark, Mm -hmm. who wrote a book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious with the the general argument that everybody's religious somehow you know however however that looks like and his definition being religion is perceived necessity right so if our perceived necessity is certainty how are we finding that certainty 
if we're finding it in <clears throat> Christianity, then that's that, that's pretty much your your religion. If you find it in where I went after leaving with his, um, you know, atheism, uh, broadly speaking, I needed that kind of certainty that there was nothing Lisa could do with that, you know. But this idea of maybe there's something, maybe there's nothing. Who knows? Possibility. That's that's the scariest thing in the world is not knowing and not being able to account for that, right? So. In that way, whenever I, I found that that book, um, I read it and I got I got mad. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like who the hell does this guy think he is? You know, not, not religious. You know, like. And then by the end of it, I was like, well, shit, maybe I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of the certainty. When I think of certainty with Christianity, it's not just certainty that you're right about the doctrine, but like, I think about like every family member, every grandparent who died and we heard to the very end, they were confident that, that they were going to be with their savior when yeah. they closed their eyes and breathed their last breath. And that's where they are right now. And isn't that a great story? And, <laughs> and Alan Watts in that book, you know, so much, so much of that, that certainty about the future. Mm-hmm. And so okay. much of that book is, is about how people spend so much time preparing for their future, preparing to be happy in the future, Mm. When the future is an abstract that you're never in, you're only ever in the present and exactly. preparing to be happy is pointless when you yeah. can be happy now and choose to live now. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I mean, it's not like it's a new idea that, you know, be, be here now and, 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 and try to be present, but mm-hmm. so much of that book just kept going over those same concepts that it's been something I've been rolling around in my head ever since. Uh, even more and, and talking to my kids about when when they're when they're talking about future things I'm like yeah well you know we have now so <laughs> right. let's let's choose to enjoy now because we actually have it right that's that's it you know I think the pandemic has definitely been rather clarifying on that point that you know tomorrow really isn't promised we had all these plans of all the things that we were going to do and they were all shuttered yeah you know and for I think many of us who, to some extent, use planning as a coping mechanism, <laughs> it was a wild time, right? We had right. to deal with some things, and you know you couldn't go, oh well, you know I'm just gonna I'm gonna focus, I'm gonna plan on doing, on getting this uh, this record out, I'm gonna plan, I'm gonna get the kids over here, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna travel to see this person. There were there was none of that, you know, kind of scheduling Tetris. Instead, you were stuck in the house with the only people who who really know you and people it was it, you know that's a that can be a scary thing right because so not we only started you started podcasts we started <laughs> podcasts after a while they're like god you're on my nerves do something um but but really but and then we're stuck with ourselves you know we sit and we have a lot more time to think about things and you, you've seen that happen with some folks where you know relationships have changed career trajectories have changed um, you know, the way that they have been able to start prioritizing themselves. You know, I know a lot of people who started finally, you know, going to therapy or started paying more attention to their physical health and just saying, now I have time to actually cook food and just eat better, you know, those kinds of things. And actually, you know, set aside to have that time for myself that I'm not spending, you know, 15 hours a week commuting to work. You know, we had, a, we had more time to, to stop and be a bit more present. And 
you know, as, as you said, you know, we, we have these, these references in, in pop culture, Yoda, his main complaint about Luke was that, you know, a long time I've watched this one and he, all his, his life is, he was never paying attention to what he was doing or where he was. He was always looking to the future. He was never there in the moment. And when I was a kid, I was like, man, he's kind of a dick, but now I'm just like, no, he's right. <laughs> you know, like, and like, but that's, yeah, that's, that's one of those things whenever life is constantly happening, you have, you know, like the FOMO, right? The fear of, of missing out. And that has replaced what we actually need, which is that being present. I have not read that David Dark book. Um, I would like to, uh, but do you remember how he defines religious in that book? I like to perceive certainty. I like that, yeah. that phrase. Yeah, no, no it's per- perceived perceive necessity. Perceived necessity. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how, I don't know if that's the exact way he defines it, but that's, that's been uh, more his tact in the, in the last couple of years. So. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I will have to, I will have to pick that up. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah, it's worth it. Cause it's always ironic. Yeah. There are evangelicals who talk about, certainty and and a lot of the i mean there's a huge apologetics as we all know here i mean apologetics type market and books out there where we're supposed to arrive at certainty and it's i mean when when we just step back and say we're having faith the word faith implies some amount of doubt right i mean just just by by nature of what it is like you know, blessed are those who have not seen that mm-hmm. Jesus himself said. I mean, within that statement, there's some kind of, um, you know, like I, I am committed to Jesus. I, I love Jesus. I think Jesus uh, gives me hope. And but do I have doubts? Absolutely. Do I have lots of questions? Yes. And, okay. you know, you brought up the, um, the problem of suffering and like, why does that happen? one of the amazing things about the Bible is there's two books that talk about suffering and there's no answer. Like Job, Job <laughs> yeah. and Ecclesiastes, there's no like good answer. Right. I mean, it's right. just yeah. meaningless, it meaningless a chasing after yeah. the wind. Yeah. We're just here. And, right. and sometimes things suck. Right. Um, yeah. There's no point or purpose and it's hard. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. But I always found amazing, that ironic. Like, ma- male yeah. authors wouldn't wouldn't try to fix suffering (laughs) like i've I've learned that when when my wife needs to vent it's not so that i can fix something it's so that i could say that really sucks i'm sorry yeah and i guess those books are basically saying this really sucks sorry (laughs) right yeah (laughs) just 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 saying his wealth job's wealth is gone his whole family dies yeah that you know that really sucks yeah sorry man Well, we're going somewhere, Dave. <laughs> no, that was that was pretty much all I had to say on that topic. However, I think we should, you know, turn here toward Britney Spears as far as yes. like how about a wild transition? Because um, <laughs> for our listeners, uh, the all multiple, of our listeners are like, "Here's the Britney yes. Spears." Speaking part of, the of show. suffering, it's Faith time to talk about Britney Spears. Britney Spears. <laughs> so you know, for our oh, listeners. Um, multiple sources podcasters uh, you guys have 10 episodes out and you're going to have a new season coming pretty soon that you're going to start recording that people could be on the lookout for um all of the episodes that that i've heard are are fascinating one that particularly stuck out to me was the britney spears one and 
I am not a big Britney Spears fan. You know, when I was mm-hmm. in high school, I, I, you know, the pop hits that you always heard on the radio. Um, in one, just, just, just like, what you, what's your favorite? Uh, let's see. Well, she had to hit me baby one more time, right? That's it. That was the first. Yeah. Toxic's the best. Toxic? Yeah, that attracts laughs. Wait a minute. No. <laughs> well, no, that's got to really tell like me how toxic it is. Because I don't. But toxic is so. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely did like a like a metal version of that with some people at school. It was oh, great. Wow. Just okay. like, did, 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 you know, like the double bass pedal situation. It's great. <laughs> that so, was uh, wild. Uh, um, I told. Be, be, I. Should I just say this now? Okay. Go ahead. Uh, there, there, I have a CCM connection to, to Britney Spears here that I want to lay out. So Br- Britney Spears came out when I was in high school and I was, I was getting into music heavily at that point. So becoming an asshole about music yeah. <laughs> at that point, a music uh, snob. Re- reading yeah. a lot of liner notes. And I was working at my, at my parents' shop as well. And they, even though they didn't really sell a ton of, that stuff because because they did sheet music and things they would get cds just sent to them by the publishers for all the upcoming things and there there was a christian boy band named plus one i remember um, i see yes. god is the plus one in the relationship is pro- what this is about i'm not sure exactly I, the meaning you're exactly um, right but <laughs> i remember pulling out the cd and reading the liner notes of it and i'd read the liner notes of the Britney Spears album so that I could write an editorial for the school paper about how pop music is so terrible and nobody writes their own songs and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just noticed that like the guy that wrote like all of the songs for plus one, I believe his name was Eric Foster white. Um, Cause I know it was like Eric Foster white and Max Martin, like wrote right. all of Britney Spears, first record. And it was one of them. I'm pretty sure it was Eric Foster white wrote the whole plus one album. And that was this real crystallizing moment for me about the bullshit of the CCM industry (laughs) where I'm like, this just is secular pop music with a Jesus stamp put on it. Yeah. There's literally no difference. They're like, we need a big hit. We're going to hire the Britney Spears guy, make us some Jesus songs, you know, make us songs and make them close enough that we can interpret it as being about Jesus and then we'll say, yeah, it's about Jesus, and we'll have a big hit. And I remember being really bent out of shape about that. So, uh, so if you like the first Britney Spears record and you want to hear more of it, listen to Plus One. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I, <laughs> I was not expecting Plus One to be brought up tonight, but oh, yeah. nope. <laughs> but here we are, the Christian, the Christian boy band, totally. But um. But yeah, I was going to say that, so the, the Britney Spears episode, which I think was one of your first ones. And I, I just found that out of the ones I listened to, it was so fascinating because I didn't really know anything about what was going on with the Britney Spears. So your episode was like my, my dive into it. I, I kind of got, you know, I saw the free Britney signs that people had up before that. And I was kind of like, eh, okay, I don't really know what's going on. I heard something about a conservative conservatorship and all that. Um, but you guys dive into it really deep. Um, I had not followed the case that closely. And it was interesting. So I thought about your episode after that in the sense of evangelicalism and its relationship to patriarchy in many of its corridors. Um, and that's, that's something that has become a hot topic as Dr. Kristen DeMay has written Jesus and John Wayne, Dr. Beth Allison mm-hmm. Barr, 
um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And there's been a lot of other books that, that people are rightfully kind of, you know, deconstructing this idea or kind of taking this apart and seeing what's behind it. And I think you guys alluded to this in your show, if I'm remembering right, but there is, you know, a connection between Britney Spears and evangelicalism because she was, she was raised in it. And then we have this situation, sure, there might be questions about disability, uh, mental health, all of those things, but we have, you know, family members who are taking from her success as a pop superstar, no matter, you know, what we think about her music or her as an artist, I mean, this is the stuff, she is working for these things. She Mm -hmm. is, you know, this is her career. And that's, you know, it's kind of a disturbing aspect of the story, how much of the religious environment that she was involved in was kind of contributing to this, like, we are taking money from you. We are, you know, you're working and somehow it belongs to us, like this patriarchal idea. Yeah, there's definitely that, you know, that paternalistic, oh, right. you're just a, you're just a girl, you know, you're just a woman. You you don't know what you're you're doing. Let me let me do that for you. Let me, uh, you know, take that burden from your your shoulders, that kind of thing. And then proceed to to spend that money wherever they saw fit. Um, mm-hmm. Tithing. Yeah, you know, tithing. I'm sure. Oh, the tithing. Right? That's oh. what they did with it. Tithing on very big mansions. And yes, yes, yeah. yes. And, I th- and probably on, you know, some some churches that uh, might have had some political ties that, you know, worked mm. for them. But, you know, whatever, you know, I'm just you know, throwing those <laughs> those things out there. Um, but you, you do see that with her, you know, there's, uh, Dr. Dr. Gideon is really great with, um you know, kind of breaking, breaking those, those situations down to see, you know, where did this, where did this start? You know, where do some of these behaviors come from? And you see it in, in church, you know, as you, you talked about, you know, Jesus and John Wayne and, and, and whatnot of, you know, this is how women are treated, you know, and this is how we expect men to treat the women and everybody's just supposed to be fine with it. Um, and you, you see like it's, it's essentially abuse and it's, um, and it's certified and has a stamp of Jesus on it. And so they don't think they're doing anything wrong by taking advantage of another human being, you know, like it's, it's totally, totally fine, you know? Um, and it was, th- it was 13 years of conservatorship, which is just mind boggling. Like it, that should never have been possible. So however, I'm That's sure somebody word I had heard before yeah. the Britney Spears thing, right? Like it exactly. sounds so old timey. It yeah. sounds like this is something that happens like on a plantation. Yeah, it's 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 it is a very very um you know legal legalese thing yeah. you know where I'm it's usually like foghorn leghorn like announcing that you you got a conservatorship yeah <laughs> yeah 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 for, for 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 mom but for me mom you know and that which is you know what it was usually for you know somebody's you know old you know discombobulated relative or something you know like they were you know you you wouldn't think that it would be you know a young um you know superstar a pop star you know, who had a, a Vegas residency on the go while she was under this thing, you know, it was, hmm. it's really bananas. Somebody's going to end up investigating that whole mess and, you know, and find out just how, how bad it was. Cause it did just, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Wildest I that I remember deal. hearing, and you, you, you may know of ones that are far wilder, but hearing that, that she wasn't allowed to take out her, her IUD, yeah. uh, her, her birth control for years and yeah. years. And she wanted to have another kid yeah and but her dad was able to legally prevent her from having a child 
Yep, yeah, that's right. That is yeah, preventing a grown woman from having a life. That just is correct. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we our last guest on the show uh in back in November was Dante Stewart. Yes. And and you that uh we didn't really get to ask him very much because that guy can monologue. Mm, like, yes. like nobody, you know, you just you give him something, he can just go. He's uh, a, he is a genius. So, yeah. Oh, abs- yes. Absolutely. Absolutely a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, at the very end, I was like, hey, you know, this is the anniversary of of the the, the passing of James Baldwin. I know that's a big big deal to you you want to give us some thoughts and he gave us like 10 minutes of just like oh gushing about james baldwin and he probably held back too so probably, <laughs> i'm sure probably i'm sure but yeah we we uh we didn't go as deep in, into white supremacy well I, I guess that was sort of the focal point of it but yeah. i don't know i i i feel like it it, it, it was uh I don't know why we didn't realize this in in starting the show at the very beginning, but doing a show about evangelical adjacent topics means we're talking about white culture um, almost exclusively. Um, Evangelicalism just is a construct of white supremacy, I believe. Um, (laughs) And often (laughs) feel feel free to disagree with that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, Letter from Birmingham Jail is why we left our church. When I finally read that, I was like, oh, shit. We're the mm. white moderates. This is not good. I'm out. We're done. Yeah. And I'd gone to that church looking for something a little bit more diverse than my previous experiences because those were just like 20 and 30-somethings at a cool hipster church that hated women. Um, <laughs> so for this one, I was like, something more, you know, Mars Hill, hello. Um mm. It's like, hey, let's go to a, something you know less cool, more diverse. And by that, I just meant like there's also old people, but they're all <laughs> old white people. Um, so, uh, I don't, I don't know. What kind of questions can I hit you with? Is it possible to fix the white supremacy of the American evangelical church? Ooh, that's a good question. Or do we just have to accept that's just part of the deal? I mean, I am certainly no expert. There, Ten there point plan. Much, um, much more uh, qualified people who have done a lot more research on this point <laughs> than I have. But I will say, uh, as you noted, it is deeply entrenched. It's kind of you know, built into the history. Um, and I don't know if it's something that can be salvageable or if it's something that should just be they should just scrap it and start over. You know, baby bathwater talk. A lot of, baby bath water talk. A lot of uh, you know, trying to figure you, out. Now that you've uh, the baby in the bathwater, I cannot stand that expression. Oh, I, know. I, I know. hate it. <laughs> Absolutely hate it. Cause it's like, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're doing that thing that they do mm-hmm. where it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, but you know, you don't want to throw out. No, no, no. We want to throw out all that goes. Yes. Yeah. All, all, all that goes. It's not a real baby. It's a yeah. fake one. Yeah, just throw it the whole the yeah, whole I thing. Out. It's like it's, it's like a rabid raccoon that wandered into your right. house. Right, right. You're At tripping. Point, I'm like, it's not real. <laughs> renovate the fucking bathroom. Tear right. it all out. <laughs> that's 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 just it, you know. And you you have you know other conversations about you know deconstructing things or whatever. It's just like y'all you know, just 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 burn it down. Honestly, how many termite mites have 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 gone through the walls and the floors, you know? And what is in the foundation that we see? You know, we that we, we have research on is, is, you know, white supremacy, you know, and that's just the, 
uh, that's just the deal. And, you know, you had uh, African-Americans in this country who had to pull all the good stuff from the Bible out of that and, tr and, and try to reframe it as something that is not, um, you know, this, this hateful work, essentially. You know, you have the, you have the, the, the beautiful history of, um, you know, the, the AME church, you know, who, um, who stood up for what was right, who, who were actually trying to embody Jesus words, as opposed to many of their, their white counterparts, you know, who allegedly shared the same religion and beliefs, um, but not the same lives, you know, um, and it, and it, it keeps going now. You still have uh these white evangelical pastors of these very large organizations who continue to be notably silent on the issue of white supremacy and it shouldn't be difficult really to it, say it should not this be. is wrong yeah it should it's, not be you know it should not and be difficult they, to say evil no it's it's not yeah. it's just it's a, it's a few words they say loads of words every day some of them are prolific writers and they've got 20 books out it's like you know so at some point in there just have a little courage, even if it scares away some of your biggest tithers hmm. to just, you know, say it. But then if you say it, you actually then have to do the, the work in your church to deal with it. You can't just say, oh, white supremacy is evil or and white supremacy is antichrist. OK, cool. I agree. So what are you doing about it? Hmm. And like, how are you applying that to what you're teaching in church? Because there are some uh, some some very supremacist doctrines that have have come out of um, some of these evangelical seminaries and, and divinity schools mm -hmm. that really really have to be dealt with. Which goes back to my original thought of oh, just, it might, it's probably easier to burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean one one thing that's become very clear over the last ten years is that even you know very typical expressions of of uh of of faith uh very very typical ways of doing church uh in in black american culture uh when white christians hear about them they have just decided that black christians aren't real christians right yeah <laughs> yeah and it's like oh great and i'm glad that you have decided that you are the arbiter of that because yeah. liberation you're white. theology is heresy <laughs> you know right yeah. exactly and then they, in the same breath they have the audacity to quote martin luther king yeah yeah you know it's like they like the little quotes of you know oh you know judge a person by their character this this whole thing it's like yeah but he had a lot to say about social justice and the justice system and capitalism and everything else they hated him in the 60s absolutely hated him the same people that hate him then the same people who would hate him now if he was around it's the exact they're like nothing has changed yeah i think they want to believe it but yeah when he was assassinated i think his approval rating overall was in the 30 percentile i mean yeah, yeah. yeah most most people absolutely hated him yep. and i'm you know i'm wondering if one of the i mean there's probably many blind spots but I'm wondering if one of the blind spots is it's it's the syncretism of Christianity with conservative politics in the sense of individualism and evangelicalism views racism as just an individual sin. It's like the individual person that just has prejudice or 
off-color jokes about other races or does, you know, just whatever, is involved in a terrible group or whatnot. And there's a blind spot of not seeing that it is systemic in society and, and also obviously in the church. Um, uh, Dr. Jamar Tisby had the color compromise where he goes through a lot of reformed heroes, I think even beyond that, who own slaves, um, such as Jonathan Edwards. John Piper. Uh, well, <laughs> the, the Bloodlines book is supposed to be pretty bad, as we, as we heard mm. Dante Stewart. Um, but yeah, I wonder if that's one of the big blind spots is the, the forcibly not seeing the systemic problems that people mm. are talking about and just viewing everything in individualistic terms. Yeah. You know, there's this um, kind of desperate attempt to separate religion and culture. Mm. Right. And if I just have my religion over here, I don't have to deal with any of the other things over there, which is funny to me because the two things are inextricably linked. You know, the religion comes out of the culture, the culture, very much influences the religion because people live, they have lives, they are in living day-to-day lives in the world. They're a part of whatever culture and society they're from. And so they are taking that, they're taking their experiences, which are absolutely valid and legitimate and taking them into the church. And that is shaping that religion. So the notion that you can just say, oh, no, no, no we can just keep that, that race thing over there because it's culture. And of course, nobody ever wants to define what culture means, you know, God forbid, because then you would actually have to, you know, get really specific and there's no time for, for that kind of stuff. Um, but the, the, the culture thing is the people. The people are racist. They are holding these racist values and they have them in the church. And the two things are, like you said, it's like this weird synchronicity where they validate it. Hmm. You know, they will find the verses that will validate their anti-Semitism, that will validate their bigotry, that will validate their general hatred. You know, whenever, you know, I've heard this a million times, whenever you read something, you're not really reading what's there so much as you're, 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 you're reading yourself. You know, you're seeing yourself in what you read. You know, we keep, like, where you stand determines what you see. So if you are a card-carrying racist, everything you see is through that lens. You know, and it's not, it doesn't even have to be intentional. That is how that is. So if you have somebody, you know, in the pulpit who is that way, who may not be burning crosses every day, but they're perfectly content to think of, you know, people of color as lesser than or people to be, uh, again, uh, sort of patronized in different ways um, that, oh, no, 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 they, they don't really know we're supposed to, you know, we need to save these poor people in, in Africa. We need to save these poor people. And, you know, I think the white savior kind of complex sort of stuff, all of that comes back to this, this, this white supremacy thing that I am, that we are better as white people and we need to go and do these things. And it's like, well, who told you that? You just thought that the Bible didn't say that. Right. But you you made it say you you saw it in there and so there it was you know so i mean the 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 bible is culture you know the culture of the times in which it was written and stays with us now and our culture now continues to to mix with it. it can't help it 
you know, it's not a closed system of propositions outside of the people who are involved and people who continue to, to give it life. It's just, it's just not humanly possible to separate them. My I, opinion. I, I, I think if it's, if it's so easy to dismiss liberation theology, to dismiss the theologies of the oppressed, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for me to not see your theology as a theology of the oppressor. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like your theology is saying that I am not enough. Is that, is that what you're saying? That, that your theology is saying that I don't deserve to have the same happiness, health, salvation, joy, blessings that you get to like, make that make sense. But no sense is made of it because, well, you don't want the religion to get involved in the politics and the culture even though both of those things always end up in the religion, the religion ends up in the politics, you know? So I think Britney Spears would call that toxic. (laughs) 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 And that's what we do. That's called a callback. Um, It's a professional podcasting move. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. I'll do it. I'm really good at it. Yeah, yeah. Working Back, on you are yeah. you are still good at your job. I'm happy to report here. Right, oh, thank you. Yeah, my <laughs> annual review is coming up. I'm I'm hoping Dave's going to give me a raise. Right, oh, four yeah. stars. A bonus, <laughs> total bonus. Yeah. <laughs> so we should get back to our fun question about yes the five best drummers in the world. Ah, uh, okay. Other like, than living, Jazz Robertson, I mean, yeah, ob- obviously, ob- obviously, I'm just the best kept secret. Um, I, so living or or, or but, no longer? I, you know, let's let's go with all time. Okay, let's go with all time. Well, I think that might be fun. Okay, so I'll do all time, um, and I, I will say who I think who, who they are to me. I, I don't think that this this applies to everybody, um, but it's just people who taste things. Uh, it is, it's a taste thing and it's people who influenced me and inspired me to keep going, you know, even on those days where I was like, God, this is a lot of work, you know, or like, is this even going to happen? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so one of them for sure is, um, is Steve Gadd, who <clears throat> amazing drummer played for everybody did a lot of studio stuff especially in the in the 70s and 80s he's still so active now i think he's near almost 80 years old and still killing it just amazing pocket um tell you to what were some of the most well-known bands that he was involved in oh, yeah, yeah um so simon and garfunkel oh yeah okay yeah like the uh, like concert in central park and and all that like he was oh, wow. he was on that um, and what, one of the other drummers that would uh, sometimes be on that gig was, was Grady Tate, who was also phenomenal. Um, hmm. Let's see, um, Steely Dan, like Asia, um, he was on on the title track, which which has a uh, like a legendary drum solo. Like it's one of those ones that you know, as a drummer, you you sit and transcribe and you listen and you try to try to work it out. It's you know, it's one of those kinds of things. So. Hmm. Um, those are probably the, the, the two most well-known, um, like his stuff with Paul Simon, like 50 ways to leave your lover. That is like another kind of cool drum intro thing. If you like marching band stuff, it has like that army sort of marching thing in the start. That song was off limits <clears throat> in my house growing up. 50 ways <laughs> to leave your lover. Yep. <laughs> Jeez, man. Promoting infidelity. <laughs> yeah, but it's so good. Uh- <laughs> I'm not kidding. 
<laughs> wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding that it was banned from my house. Yes. Yeah. I believe it. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I hear that. I, I, I do what I say. I had to sneak some music into my own house growing up, but um, <laughs> not that luckily my mom let, let that one pass. Um, so yeah, th- those are some from him. Uh, another one is Vinny Caliuta, who um, bit, a little bit younger, but he's just kind of like this mad scientist genius kind of guy. Like he's, his big break, I think was probably with Frank Zappa back in the seventies. Um, but he played with Sting for a really long time. He's on half of his records. He's played Faith Hill and from Megadeth and Herbie Hancock and Shikari. Like he's, he's, I'd be hard pressed to, to find somebody he hasn't, you know, recorded or toured with. He's just one of those guys. Um, let's see. So where are we at? We have those two. We have number three. His, um, God, this is, this is really hard. I got those two out of the way. Now, now we're left with these ones. Um, number three, Tony Williams, jazz drummer. Hmm. Started with Miles when he was a teenager and was absolutely ridiculous. Um, died far too young, but that, I think that was, that was his main gig. Yeah, it was his own music and whatnot, but absolutely incredible jazz drummer. Uh, inspired watched, a lot. I just watched Miles Davis, uh, The Birth of Cool, that documentary. Yeah. On, uh, is it on Netflix? I think it's on Netflix. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. 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 That was good. Yeah. He, I've been meaning to read his book. Miles uh, Davis? I hear basically every every page has an incredible quote, usually involving the word motherfucker. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I read that book and was like, wow, this cat was wild. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You knew yeah. how he felt about you. hundred <laughs> percent. That's just it. You yeah. know, you, you, you knew there, there was no mystery with, with, with that guy. Yeah um yeah definitely yeah it's a it's a good it's a good read uh so yeah those, those three who else am i uh am i gonna get in there oh man you get miles and, and tremors that worked with him uh airto yeah yeah i I, yeah. I saw him when i was like 15 i saw him uh when i was on vacation with my dad and i was pretty good playing in uh fourth world with with flora purim mm-hmm. uh that was pretty cool but yeah yeah, yeah le- legendary drummers yeah absolutely um him uh, one of my, um, somebody's a, a, I guess a bit more, more contemporary is a drummer who, like his, his big thing, um, was Pat Metheny. Like that was like, kind of like how he started there, the jazz guitarist. Oh, um, times. yeah, yeah his, his drummer, uh, Antonio Sanchez. Yeah. Uh, he's a drummer out of Mexico. He's been in the States for years and he's just phenomenal. Like his, his independence is, is just, it's just disgusting. Like it's just not not okay um and he's but he's, he's also a brilliant composer like he he did the music for Birdman. oh okay yeah you know, like he and he, he and get shorty and all this other stuff so he, he's a brilliant brilliant drummer um and, and and musician overall and then number number five we're on number five god yeah. oh man should just throw like a throw a wild card one out there i don't know what, what, what's, what's your feeling on how legit it is to put Animal from the Muppets on this list? I see people do that sometimes. And see, I'm going to... I think he's inspiring. When you're a kid and you see him, and you're like the raw passion. Yeah, I see that, but but he wasn't the one actually playing the drums, though, and that's the thing. It's true. You know, that's the thing. So I guess I'll just, I'll just throw out John Bottom because I always wanted to have a gong behind me um mm. playing drums you know i saw a picture of him with a gong and some timpanis and was like what <laughs> 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 like okay I'll, 
I'll do that. So yeah, there, there's there's my there's my wild card pick, you know, because that right. was kind of you know deep deep pocket for uh, for rock music, you know, like really uh, it wasn't just you know you kind of compare like a Led Zeppelin and just like the Who kind of thing, and it's just like for me Led Zeppelin it's just like the pocket they had the pocket, yeah, and as a as a drummer that that's it's kind of my thing, yeah. One last good good drumming uh, thing. Did you did you ever see? Uh, this got passed around a lot of musician circles. Uh, Fred Armisen's fake drumming instructional video. No. Um, <laughs> he put out. I have to I find think, this now. Uh, I think they released it on VHS. Actually, he, he put it out. Oh my god! Uh, by a, a Chicago record label, put it out. It's called "Complicated Drumming Techniques" <laughs> with with Jens Henneman. Oh, and, this sounds familiar now. And it's, it's, if you, if you grew up watching drumming instructional videos, it is exactly like that. Wow. Um, but hilarious. I'm going to have to find that now. Uh, Thank yeah, you. It is, it is a, it is a wonderful treat. Thank you for, <laughs> for that. any musician. I believe his, his signature move is the paradiddle elegram, okay. um, which is something like, Left, 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 right, right, left, right, 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 left, 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 right, left, 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 right, left, right, left, 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 left. And he repeats it. You're like, there's no way you actually memorize it. So so for the folks listening at home, this is not real. Continue. No, it's it's Oh my gosh, that's that's wild. Okay, now I'm gonna have to Google that. Yeah, as soon as I get up this call, I'm I'm gonna Google that. All right, all right. Well, Jazz, thank you so much for coming on the show um i didn't get to ask you about the other jazz robertson who is a singer that i found when i was googling you no idea um, oh okay so we're not okay no reviews of that jazz no idea. <laughs> um but you may need to talk to your lawyer get prepared you, to cease and desist yeah right like trademark cha- this change your name to <laughs> something else i had it um, first <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, give, thanks give for having regards me. <laughs> to Dr. Gregory Allen Thornbury. Totally, certainly will. Um, <laughs> of course. And uh, we we will be looking forward to hearing the new episodes of Multiple Sources. Uh, and Dave's gonna brush up on his Britney Spears. Yeah, uh, that's my homework from this call. That's right. <laughs> Read Next a few time we Britney talk, Spears books. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get do a deep dive on her second record. All right. Okay. Gonna... Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure to talk to y'all. Great to meet All you. Right. An honor. Thank you. So nice uh, to get Jazz on the show. Yeah, man. She's a she's a cool spirit. Very very enjoyable interview. I think we did all right for being off for like a month and a half, and here we are back. Yeah, you know, getting back in the swing of things. I really thought I might be able to trip you up uh, at the beginning by by saying I was still an evangelical. Um, I but uh, you were on top. You you caught it. Yeah, I you were not phased. I caught it, or in the back of my mind, I was like, "Was there a Christmas miracle?" You know, you never know. You, you had the the gift of discernment. There. <laughs> you couldn't be caught. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. This has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. Wherever you like to get podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review as that helps others find our show. Also, make sure to check out Multiple Sources podcast with uh, 
Jazz Robertson, and also past guest Gregory Allen Thornberry. You can uh, follow our show Twitter, VCW Pod, at VCW Pod. You can follow Zach on Twitter at Muzak, M U Z A C H. You can follow me at Dave J. Lester. Check out Zach's website for his music and other art that he does, muzak.bandcamp.com. Music and logo by Zach. Thanks again for coming on down to the BCW uh, after Dave put in all that work to really spruce it up. Um, you know, I, I had to take down the, the lights and, um, and the holly, the, the boughs, all, all of that. Um, so it was only fair that, that he did the rest. But um, So sad yeah. letting go of Christmas. It, it really is. It, take, taking down that stuff was the worst. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we only rent the space. So really, we weren't supposed to put it up. So kind of got in trouble. <laughs> so actually, that reminds me, you have to pay half of the fine. That's $25. You can bend them. We'll 25 bucks? In this, um, in this economy? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so thanks again for coming on down. And remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%.